Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. If you cast your mind back to summer... You may remember that the 15th of July is St. Swithin's Day. And according to folklore, if it rains on that day, it will rain for the next 40 days. And if it is dry, it will remain so. But who actually was St. Swithin and why did that legend come about? Now, as it happens, St. Swithin actually became a hugely significant saint in Winchester and Wessex, just as England was beginning to form as a country. And not long after, his fame and his cult spread out from Wessex across Europe and especially to Scandinavia, where he and similar saints played a crucial role in the conversion to Christianity. To find out more about St. Swithin today, I'm really delighted to have with me Dr. Carl Christian Alvestar, historian and associate professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. Welcome to Gone Medieval today, Carl. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to contribute here. So I'm quite excited. I've got lots of things I really want to talk to you about, and, and not least, you know, some of the, the later impacts that Swithin's had and how his name, you know, his story has gone on for quite some time. But can we just talk about this legend of what happens on St. Swithin's Day, first of all? What is that story and how did that come about? So you are here referring to the story that if it rains on St. Sweden's Day, which is in July, it will then rain for 40 days and 40 nights, which is one of these folk weather forecast events that is used in traditional agricultural calendars throughout Europe. We also see it in Norway, we see it in England, we see it on the continent. And the story itself seems to be emerging sometime in the Middle Ages. But it's in stark contrast in many ways to the miracles recorded and the events recorded around the translation of St. Sweden himself. As a person, he lives in the 9th century. But in the 10th century, there seems to be a wave of translations of saints on the continent that inspires the Anglo-Saxon church, and particularly the church in Winchester, which seems to be somewhat clued into the continental trends. So by translation, you mean moving the remains, moving the body of the saint, is that right? Yes, yes. So it's a translation means moving the body or the remains of a saint from the original tomb or where the body is discovered. In some cases, you discover a saint and then move it into a shrine. And then in that process, you verify that these are the original remains or the remains that are 
the authentic ones. So in one of the cases in Norway where we have St. Olaf, which is an earlier example, the translation is moving the body from a sand pit outside a town into a shrine and having a verification process with that. And in the case of St. Swithin, there is then this contrast between St. Swithin himself performing allegedly miracles, telling townspeople in Winchester that he wants to be translated, and the story that the 40 days and 40 nights of rain is a punishment for doing the translation. So this is a saint who can't make his mind up, is what I would conclude. (laughs) In these stories in the 960s and 970s, there are local smiths, there are town people, there are people who are suffering from different illnesses who are accidentally or consciously engaging with the burial site of the then dead Bishop Swithin, and who are healed or through visiting the tomb are meeting the saint in a dream. And the saint is telling them, please make sure that the bishop and his canons are translating me from this tomb to sainthood. But if you hold that narrative up against the then folkloric myth of the saint is punishing us with rain for doing the translation, yeah, I'm not quite convinced that this saint has fully engaged with his audience or that they translated the wrong person. Ah, maybe that was the problem. (laughs) Maybe that's what happened. So all of these has got quite jumbled up and quite sort of lots of different legends and different stories that's led us to the sort of popular myth that we have now. But let's talk about him. Let's find out a little bit more about the facts of of Swithin. Was he actually a real person? Yes, he is a real person. And what we know of him as an early start is that he is a priest and a teacher at the court of Eckbert who's the grandfather of Alfred the Great. And he seems to have taught Eckbert's son at some point before he becomes Bishop of Winchester in the 850s. And he works as a bishop for about 10 years until the 860s. So he's at that point where the Kingdom of Wessex is starting to come under pressure from the Vikings. And he seems to be holding the fort in Winchester for a period when you see Winchester being attacked. One of these famous episodes of Winchester being laid in ruin by the Great Heathen Army and the earlier attacks is at the end of Sweden's rule as bishop in Winchester. So in many ways, he as the ecclesiastical power in the city is the person who's leading everything happening there in the defense in the absence of the king. So he is a really an important figure in the community. And he is the representative of both the church in some ways, possibly at that point, we can also possibly see the bishops as a power in the community as well because of their presence and because of the land holdings and their engagement with the monastery and the minster at the time. This is before you have the establishment of new minster, which comes later on, that in some ways splits or drags the religious power of Winchester in two. So this is the community around the Old Minster, which is already site of religious cults where you already have saints. So he's just one of many saints attached to 
this religious institution. At that point, it is a important religious institution in the Kingdom of Wessex, but it's not the only one. Later on, of course, Winchester grows in prominence and religious importance, partly because of the House of Wessex and their burial site connected to the Newminster, but also partly because of the importance of the See of Winchester. So he is quite an important bishop in his time, and he helps form in many ways the foundations that Alfred later on is building on, in that he's educating Alfred's father, who again facilitates to some extent Alfred's engagement with learning and his engagement with the church. So this is part of a wider West Saxon cultural landscape in some ways. What we also know is that he's buried after his death outside of the Old Minster Church, which isn't abnormal to have someone buried outside a church as an act of humility, that he is not deserving of being buried close to the altar. That's part of the story that's being told. And by burying him outside, he's then also allegedly saying that if he's moved, he will then cause and contribute to bad weather and punish the people who's moving him, which is where you have this origin story of him saying, no, you can't touch me. And at the same time, 100 years later, he goes, oh, by the way, I'm actually a saint, so please move me. And it's about 100 years from his death. So he dies around 863. And in 964, Winchester as a religious site and as a political site has grown significantly in power and prestige. And in 864, you have then the first miracle related to the translation or the moving of the body where one of the smiths of the city has a dream and being told by Swithin, 101 years after his death, that he needs to be moved and translated in. And what is also telling about this story is that the smith is being instructed to inform one of the canons who's at the time in conflict with a bishop to bridge the conflict with the bishop and to facilitate the translation of the saint into the cathedral. So there are many elements of conflict and of relationships we're seeing developing in the city of Winchester through this miracle and through these translation stories. Unfortunately, the smith doesn't follow the saint's order. He forgets and he then tells one of the canons at the cathedral who is at odds with the bishop, he has a number of tenants in the city. And the smith then tells the tenant, please tell your landlord, the canon, that he needs to make peace with the bishop so that they can facilitate together the translation of the saint. The canon then doesn't really get this information until two years later. So it takes time from Swithin first start interceding on his own behalf and advocating for his sainthood until the translation process actually starts. And that triggers according to the hagiography. So the hagiography is the story of the saint's life. And according to the hagiography, there are a number of additional miracles that Swithin has to perform to awaken 
the religious and the lay community of the city to acknowledge him as a saint. And one of those, which I somewhat touched on earlier, was this healing miracle. And the healing miracle is the person in 969 has quite painful hunchback. And he falls asleep at the tomb of Swithin and then gets healed. However, they're not quite sure if it's Swithin who's healing him or if it's one of the other tombs around there. So that then doesn't give the religious authorities enough evidence to conclude that Swithin is the healing bishop. So they then have to have a final miracle, which again is a person who's cured through intercession from Swithin. So Swithin as a character in life is quite important for the foundations of the political and cultural establishment and survival of Wessex. And he's also quite important for bringing together in some ways a very tense cultural and religious landscape in Winchester in the 10th century. And this is also in the middle of the Benedictine reforms of the Anglo-Saxon church at the time. So there are a lot of things happening in the religious communities in England at a time when they are taking on the new fashion of translating local saints. So Swithin becomes part of this wider landscape of religious reform, new devotion, and focus on religiosity, also as part of the defense of the kingdom, in some ways, against the Vikings. So he's got a really quite complicated sort of backstory to him, doesn't he, Swithin? And then he's being used quite deliberately, quite politically. And, you know, the translation, you already mentioned the new minster. So there's new minster that's being established by Alfred's son, Edward the Elder. And he's sort of making a break with the previous old minster church, isn't he? And then he's sort of using this translation, taking it sort of from one into his new sort of establishment. It's clearly a very political tool as well, this the saints and use of these remains, wouldn't you say? Both yes and no. So it's part of a very political landscape. Fortunately for the old minster crowd, which is the old cathedral, the translation is focused on the old minster, not the new minster. So the new minster is the burial ground and shrine in some ways dedicated to Alfred and his son and that dynasty. Whereas Swithin becomes the focal point of the preservation and revival of the old minster, which according to the stories and the sources, is so close to the new minster that you can barely get a young child to walk between the two buildings. And if you visit Winchester and see the layout in the ground, outside the cathedral, you can see how close the two buildings actually were. And the translation of Swithin spurs on a rebuilding of the Old Minster to encompass also, and to include the original burial site of Swithin. So it kind of feeds into this competition between the two minsters that eventually evolves into the two key religious communities of Winchester, the cathedral, with its monastery, and Newminster, which eventually evolves into, after the Norman conquest, Hyde Abbey, because after the conquest, they're forced to move out of the city for a various number of reasons. It kind of becomes part of the fuel of the religious and the political fight between the two institutions, where the Newminster in many ways can be seen as the church of the dynasty. The old minster is what evolves into the cathedral, but it's also the church of 
the ecclesiastical orders of the ones who were there originally and a bishop. So part of the tension in the kingdom is manifested in the tension between these two buildings and communities in so many ways. Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. As promised, there will be... Sex. Anne has said that Henry is not skillful in copulating with a woman and has neither vigour nor potency. And scandal. Everybody just descends onto this crime scene and it's being pulled apart by members of the public sort of as quickly as they can excavate the bodies. And moments which shaped society. Pointy boobs then became a thing and were still a thing into the 1950s. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So St. Swithin starts very much like a local saint. And as you've just pointed out, he's hugely significant for Winchester and also Winchester's role in England, really, when Wessex, this is the time period where we go from different kingdoms and Wessex and you go towards an England, so an actual country. So it's, But he does start as this very sort of local saint. But then he spreads from there. So his cult goes beyond the southwest of England and beyond England altogether. And he becomes especially important in Norway. Can you say something about how this all happens? How does he spread out from England in the first place? The spread out from England seems to be part of the wider ecclesiastical networks 
and networks of monks who travel in the Middle Ages, particularly in the 10th and 11th century. So with the wave of after 971, when the translation happened, until early 12th century, there's a wave of monks traveling from England and connecting up with other monasteries, other churches elsewhere in Europe. In some ways, England is, or what becomes England, exports ecclesiastical and religious skills particularly to Northern Europe in the form of monks who become missionaries, in form of priests who become bishops, in form of bishops. And these individuals often bring with them their own traditions and religious fashions and preferences. And that seems to be part of how Swithin spreads, particularly to Scandinavia. Although we have two different dates we can deal with here. There is a reference in some central medieval material that King Knut sent a relic of Swithin to what the source is referring to as Dacia. And the Dacia they're referring to could be the Danish kingdom, which at the time could include Denmark and Norway and part of Sweden. With that, we don't actually have later medieval evidence of a Swithin relic in Denmark. There is evidence of the cultus in Swithin as in celebration of mass and prayers dedicated to Swithin or invoking Swithin in some ways. But there isn't a relic. And the only known relic of Swithin in Scandinavia is in Stavanger, which some historians have argued plausibly could be the relic that Knut sends to Scandinavia. And that is part of Knut's wider work of integrating the different parts of his kingdom. The early 11th century is a vital period, particularly in the Scandinavian context of cultural and religious change, where you have a transition from a pre-Christian social and cultural landscape to a more Christianized landscape. And the English element, and particularly the West Saxon and Winchester element, is quite important there as communities who have, in some ways, it looks like surplus individuals who they can export with competencies to perform the conversions. Winchester is not unique when it comes to sending monks abroad or bishops abroad. There are a number of ecclesiastical and religious sites in England that does this. The same in Ireland and Hamburg in what is today Germany. But Winchester seems to have a particular affinity with Scandinavia through the source material we have, partly because of the surviving manuscript references we have of individuals named coming from Winchester or from the Winchester diocese, where the cultus in Sweden is quite strong. And also we have a number of surviving manuscript fragments from Winchester surviving in Scandinavia in different versions. The Unfortunate reality with looking at the early Middle Ages in Norway is that we don't have many complete manuscripts. So the source material that we have is quite different than what we have in England or in the British Isles in general or on the continent. We have a situation where less than 1% of the written material is surviving, which means that we can't really say much from the period. We have to infer from other evidence. But what we have surviving, particularly from the 11th century, are fragments of religious texts, either 
complete leaves or fragments of the leaves that are surviving in other texts or texts that have been copied directly that gives us an insight into what might have been brought over of material goods. And much of these material goods come from Winchester and the scriptoria attached to the monasteries in Winchester. So there is likely then we can infer that along with the individuals we find mentioned in both the saga material and in Anglo-Saxon sources, that there have been a significant translation of individuals traveling and bringing with them religious practices from the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, or England at the time, to Scandinavia, and then particularly to Norway and Denmark. Denmark, due to its proximity, seems to have a lot of impact also from the German bishoprics and the Frankish kingdom, whereas England and Iceland seem to be particularly favored missionary grounds for Anglo-Saxon bishops and monks. So that is one of the earlier possible translations of Swithin from England to Norway. And the shrine at Stavanger is quite significant. It's the only known church dedication in Norway to Swithin. We have Swithin showing up in religious calendars and in the traditional agricultural calendar known as a primstav, which is a a yardstick marked with individual dates and saints' dates. And Swithin then shows up in majority of the provinces of the old Norwegian kingdom, which also includes Orkney, Shetland, Faroe Islands, Iceland, and also Greenland. But from Greenland, we don't have that much material. In mainland Norway, we find in Sweden's day throughout the kingdom. However, when it comes back to Stavanger, Stavanger is the key element here for how Swithin is introduced to Norway, at least if we're following the sources. As I mentioned earlier, we have a challenge with the number of surviving sources. But what we do have is a reference in Snorri. So uh, Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla, uh, which is the uh, saga of Norwegian kings. In there, we have a reference to a bishop, Reynard, if we cross-reference that with other sources, seems to be Reynard of Winchester, a monk who is traveling, according to the sources, from Newminster or Hyde Abbey, which is not the minster that holds St. Swithin Verest, but who brings with him, as we can infer, elements of a West Saxon cult tradition. And this is the closest thing we come to a smoking gun for who could have brought Winchester and Stavanger together. And it's in the years after we know of Reynard's life and his death as part of the Norwegian civil wars that we hear the first references to a relic of St. Sweden in Stavanger. And that relic alongside the first bishop of Stavanger that we know of, who is from Winchester, suggests that someone has brought with them both a relic, and the liturgical and ecclesiastical competencies from Winchester to build a new religious community in Stavanger. And around the beginning of the 12th century, Stavanger seems to be translating itself as a place from a small village to an ecclesiastical site that is important within the Norwegian kingdom and becomes a bishopric. 
in that process, it also then acquires a protective saint, which is then Swithin. So the cathedral in Stavanger is dedicated, among others, to St. Swithin. Stavanger then becomes a hub for the Swithin cult in Norway, based on the surviving evidence we have. The bishop of Stavanger, who succeeds Reynard, is later elected to the bishopric of Nidaros, who is the archbishopric of Norway and the Norwegian realm in the Middle Ages. And it is proposed by, among other, Michael Lappage, that he might have brought with him the familiarity and the knowledge of Swithin to Nidaros. And from Nidaros, it might have spread out to the church province of Norway. Because Nidaros is the religious and cultural hub within the Norwegian realm, it kind of becomes a catalyst for what is known there spreads out. And Swithin isn't the only Anglo-Saxon or even West Saxon saint we see reoccurring or being introduced and surviving within the Norwegian material or the Nidaros material up until the 16th century. And those Anglo-Saxon saints we do have surviving are primarily either royal saints or saintly bishops who take part in religious revivals or reforms. So Swithin here fits with a larger landscape of the cults that is promoted and favoured in the Archdiocese of Nidaros. That's, that's great. And I think it's so fascinating. And I think people don't quite realise the impact that Christianity from England and from places like Winchester actually had on Scandinavia. We tend to sort of not really see it going that way so much. But actually, that has a huge impact because we're, as you've been explaining, we're at a time where this is really developing from this sort of pre-Christian landscape and, you know, really developing as nations, you know, Norway and Sweden and them are properly developing as nations, aren't they? So, so that English influence is actually quite extraordinary, isn't it? It is very extraordinary. And one of the earliest Christian kings of Norway is supposedly, according to the sagas, fostered at an English Christian court. He's fostered at the court of Wessex and brings with him personnel, knowledge, and cult practices with back, although later he lapses into a pseudo-paganism thing without practicing Christianity, because the people he is ruling isn't ready for Christianity. Also, the later kings, so Olaf I and Olaf II, who becomes St. Olaf, also bring with them personnel, skills, and influence from the West Saxon and from England in general with them back to Norway when they're taking over the kingdom and converting the areas they're ruling. And is this something specific just to Scandinavia or do similar things happen in other parts of Europe as well from Winchester, from Wessex? Or is Scandinavia special because of the links that people, you know, you mentioned Knut already and obviously we have got uh, Scandinavian connections already. Well, Wessex at that time has a particular affinity to Scandinavia. And we see that also in Knut's reign, but we also see it in Alfred's reign, where as part of the translation of Erosius's history against the pagans, he includes the story of Uthera, where he is inquisitive about the society who produces these heathens who come and destroy his realm or attack his realm. So there's a particular interest at that time in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms about the Norse or the pre-Christian or the Scandinavian lands. But the 
spread of Christianity from Wessex or from Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in general is not unique to Scandinavia. Anglo-Saxon or English bishops and monks and nuns in particular were instrumental in the conversion of the Frisians, of the Saxons, of the territories that become integrated into the Frankish kingdoms in the north and in the west. So the fringes of Charlemagne's kingdom become converted through the aid of West Saxon monks, nuns, and bishops, although the West Saxons weren't the only ones. So there's a wider tradition of missionary work in the Anglo-Saxon or Old English churches that is, in some ways, the conversion of Scandinavia is just the last leg of this. It's the last episode in this long novella of people traveling out from the British Isles to convert the pagans. And when you hit the beginning of the 11th century, it seems to kind of slow down a little bit, partly because the pagans are further away, and partly because the interests and the focal point of the English church and the English governing system and the rulers are turned towards Normandy in a different way. The focus of the church after the Norman conquest is much more making sure that the Anglo-Saxon or the English church is having the correct rights, having the correct saints and doing all that reform to make sure they are doing the right stuff rather than spreading their own faith outwards. So other religious centers succeed in many ways and continues the tradition. So you have a spread from uh, Hamburg Bremen, which is the North German bishopric that is established in Northern Germany. But you also have other German-speaking areas that is facilitating the spread eastward into Poland, into what is today Ukraine, Belarus, etc. Although those areas is earlier also converted from the east, so from Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. So different parts and different churches are converging on the Baltic Sea with the Crusades in the 13th century against the pagans along the Baltic coast or the pre-Christian individuals along the Baltic coast are among the key final stages with the conversion of the Lithuanians in the 14th century, which is the final step. But it's just a long tradition of these religious communities as part of their work go out and convert communities out there. And that's just such a brilliant, uh, huge, big story, Carl. And I love this. And I love the fact that these saints are such a big part of it. And also the physical remains of the saints, you know, because this all starts really very much with that translation and the physical body, the skeleton being moved and all of that. And and as you've already said, this idea that a part of Sweden was one of the relics was sent to Norway. So, so I think my final question really is what we actually know about Sweden's body and his relics right now. And is there actually a bone that belongs to St. Swithin in Stavanger now, today? You're raising a very important and possibly very difficult question here. And I'm saying this because I'm not an archaeologist, I'm a historian. So I only have to rely on what other people are reporting to me. And in the historical sources, it seems to be that there has been a piece of Swithin, an arm bone, translated to Stavanger some point before the year 1200. Whether or not it's there today, we don't know. Partially because during the Reformation, most, if not all, reliquaries in Norway were destroyed. 
And there are a couple of examples that survive due to different reasons. One of them is the reliquary of St. Olaf, which was translated to the royal treasury in Denmark because of its exquisite nature. And then later was given back to the Catholic Church in Norway when it was reintroduced. There might still be a bone in Stavanger because it might have been put into the altar itself. And physically inside it. Yes, because according to the Norwegian law code, so uh, Gulating law, uh, the older Gulating law, which is the law code for pre-13th century Norway that accounts for the area of Western Norway. In that law, there is a clause that says every altar should have a relic. And an altar is not valid unless it has a relic within it. Therefore, the likely place that you would place a relic of St. Swithin would be inside of the altar. So if there is still a bone surviving there, it would be within the altar itself. And I know there are archaeological excavations going on in Stavanger at the moment, but I don't think they will be excavating the altar itself because it's still in use. (laughs) Um, But they are excavating underneath to better understand the chronology of events in the city, but also the chronology of the churches. And they have found bodies and bones and objects from pre-cathedral times in Stavanger. So there is a lot of exciting new data coming out of Stavanger. But in addition, for the community of Stavanger, the presence of the bone isn't really that important. And that seems to be part of a wider cultural revival in the 19th century, when the city becomes very comfortable about who it is. There's a larger national revival throughout Norway and Europe at this time, where the local community in Stavanger looks around at its past to see what is in our past that can show our relationship to the national history and how can we signal that both to ourselves and tell our story and to the community around us. And in some ways, make a distance to Sweden, because at that point, Norway and Sweden is in a union where a lot of the Norwegian political landscape and elite is not very happy with the union, especially from the 1860s onwards. There's a significant cultural division around the element of the union. And a number of Norwegians then turn to the past to find symbols and identifiers of a distinct Norwegian independent history where the Anglo-Saxon relationship or old English relationship with Norway and its role in facilitating the establishment of the kingdom and the establishment of the Norwegian church becomes very popular because it's tied up to the earlier kings of Norway. And in that process, Stavanger as a central medieval city, whose dating is around 1130-ish, looks at its past and say, okay, what can we use? We can't use Bishop Reynard because he is killed for treason. Ah. So the bishop who brings with him, allegedly, the relic of Sweden is killed for treason, so we can't use him. And we can't use the king who is allegedly the one who establishes the bishopric of Stavanger because he establishes the bishopric of Stavanger to be able to get a divorce and to get remarried. So what do you do? You then find a local saint. So Swithin becomes a local signifier of identity, both distinct identity from 
Bergen, which is a city further north, which has the traditional status of being the earlier capital of Norway and has other saints. And it's also a signifier against Trondheim, which in the Middle Ages was Nidaros and the site of the shrine of St. Olaf. So both is a religious signifier of saying we are an old cathedral city, but it's also tying itself to the national narrative by saying we are a cathedral city who were established as part of the wider cultural links with England, because England and the United Kingdom at that point is very culturally and politically important, both economically but also politically, in the discussions over the union with Sweden. So this is a very complex narrative, which we probably could do another episode on a different time. Yes. <laughs> but the manifestation of this enthusiasm that grows out in Stavanger for Sweden as their local medieval persona is that you find boats or ships, you find schools, you find streets, you find buildings, you find religious and civic communities named after Swithin as a local signifier, both signifying their belonging, but also possibly their religious affinity to the church and the legacy of the early church in Norway. So Sweden has become very important in Stavanger is the conclusion here. Yeah, but what's so extraordinary about that, though, isn't it? It's it's how his story has sort of gone through so many different, not just generations, but actually, you know, we're talking about centuries, millennia here, actually, starting with 9th century when he was actually alive and then going into the 10th, 11th century, Middle Ages, and then again in modern periods. So it's a sort of resonates at different time periods and that has different significance and different meanings to different people, which I think is quite extraordinary. Yeah. And even today, the cathedrals of Stavanger and Winchester have a very friendly relationship ah. where communities from each bishopric visit each other every year and have mass together to celebrate and acknowledge the relationship established on the basis of the Sweden relic. So it's a continually evolving and growing story. Fantastic. You do have to wonder what Swithin himself, who was, as you say, actively involved in battling the attacking Vikings back in the 9th century, what he would have thought if he would have liked that or not. You never quite know. True, true. Yes. Carl, that has been absolutely fantastic. And it's taken us far uh, forward in time than I I was expecting us to, which is absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for sharing all of that uh, information with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So thank you all for listening. This brings us right to the end of this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and our Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just look in the episode notes for how to do that. Please do join us again. My co-host Matt Lewis will be back again on Saturday and I will be back here next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.